please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, last chapter of 2 Timothy. And today is test day, exam day. Um, we've been walking through First and 2 Timothy since January the 29th of this year. And we have 22 verses remaining in 2 Timothy and we are long overdue for a midterm exam. If we only got 22 verses left for our final exam, we should... We should have taken our midterm already. But good news, uh, the test is not for you, it's for me. And you get to examine me. And if you've been here for any length of time, I actually want to join you in doing some examination, not of myself, but of all the other pastors who preach here in this pulpit. So if it's your first day, I'm your only subject, your only question uh, on the exam. But if you've been here for any length of time, I want to join you in examining anybody who ever preaches here. And the exam question is this, which side of verses one through five do the pastors of this church fall into? Are we word preachers or are we ear ticklers? And before you go ahead and mark an answer like filling in your Scantron from back in the day or bubbling in your remaining ACT questions that you didn't have time for, just listen to the sermon before you give your answer. But I also do want you to examine yourself in a way. Which side of verses 1 through 5 do you fall into? So in this passage, there's two types of preachers. But there's also two types of preacher listeners there's two kinds of sermons and there's two kinds of sermon listeners there's people in verses one two and five that's the good guys and there's people in verses three and four that's the bad guys the passage though it describes those two types of preachers and listeners it actually has three parts it's verses one and two verses three and four and verse five in verses 1 and 2, it is preach the word. In verses 3 and 4, it is prepare for wolves. And in verse 5, it is persevere in Christ's work. Preach the word, prepare for wolves, persevere in the work of Christ. In part 1, verses 1 and 2, Bible preachers are those, uh, pardon me, verses 1 and 2 is about Bible preachers and those who are joyfully receptive to Bible preaching. Preach the word. In verses 3 and 4, part 2, we find those who are driven by their own ungodly desires. Therefore, they have a disdain for Bible preaching. They don't like it. And thus, they feed their own ego by finding people who will tell them spiritual word salads using Bible verses, which is the stuff they already wanted to hear in the first place. Part one, preach the word. Part two, prepare for wolves. Part three is verse five. That is people who, no matter what, will not quit being Bible people because Jesus is their supreme treasure persevere in Christ's work. Preach, prepare, persevere. The passage is verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. Ask God to help you 
hear his voice as I read his word. Verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Verse 3, 4 The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths, verse 5, but you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's ask for God's help once again. Father, I'm asking that you would do for us what Trey just prayed for us. Rivet us to your word written, which is about the word incarnate. Show us that the Bible is the good news about what God has done in Christ for our eternal joy and cause us to care about what you care about. I pray that you would expose people today who have become the ear-tickled type of people described in this passage and that you would not only expose but do the gracious work of bringing to repentance so that Christ will be magnified. O God, protect us from singing on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand and living in some other way. Put our life on the rock of Christ revealed in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Preach, prepare, persevere. Preach the word, prepare for wolves, persevere in Christ's work. The first is verses one and two, preach the word. I'll reread those verses. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. There are three parts to those two verses that I especially wanna draw your attention to under our first point, preach the word. They all happen to start with the letter M, the mandate, the manner, and the motive. I'm not trying to be clever with the alliteration. It did to me just seem to fall out of the sky the other day as I was looking at this passage. The mandate, what we are to do. The manner, how we are to do it. The motive, why we are to do it. First is the mandate. What are we to do? Well, verse 1 and verse 2 combine to say it this way. I solemnly charge you, verse 1, preach the word. Now, in verses 1 and 2, and actually verse 2 only, there are five imperative commands. This is the first one. Preach the word. That's the mandate. 
That's not a suggestion. It is, as I've said, an imperative command. God is demanding through his apostle, by the Holy Spirit, that Timothy do this. Now, in the previous passage that we heard preached to us last Sunday, Paul has already affirmed to Timothy that the entire Bible, the word, is about Jesus. You can skim back to the previous chapter, look at verses 14 and 15, and you will find that Paul asserts that the sacred writings, what a word, the precious deposit of the scriptures are able to make somebody wise unto salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. That means that that Bible is about him and what God did in him to save us. The Bible is the Jesus-focused book. The word of God written, according to verses 14 and 15 of chapter three, is about the word of God incarnate, God the God-man, the Lord Jesus. So the mandate is clear. If we are to preach the word, not just Bible word salads, saying Bible verses and making them about something other than what God intended them to be, the mandate is clear. If we are to be Bible word preaching people, we will make much of Jesus and his gospel labors from all the pages of the Bible. Well, the apostle Paul wrote this sentence. And he actually said a lot of other stuff and a lot of other writings in the New Testament about his own preaching. He said things like 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. That's what he preaches. We can actually go read several of his sermons in the book of Acts, all of which focused on two things, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote to the Corinthians in another place, I made up my mind, I made a resolute determination. On purpose, I decided that when I came to you for 18 months, I would not focus on anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. First Corinthians chapter two, verse two. So the mandate to preach the word, verse two, is to preach the Christ-centered word, the gospel-focused word of God. But notice that it's a solemn warning, verse one. I solemnly charge you, some translations put it. That is an exhortation. It carries the idea of a warning. It is urgent. It is an absolute demand. So the mandate is preach the word, but I said that's one of five imperatives, five commands in verse two. The other four are the fine print. They're the explanation of what that will look like. Preach the word about Jesus. Preach the word about his gospel labors. Emphasize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from every book and every passage of the Bible. The fine print are the other four imperatives. You see them in verse two. Be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That's the fine print of the mandate. Be ready in season and out of season. At all times, under all circumstances, whether you've prepared a manuscript to explain to a group like I've tried to do for today or You're extemporaneously, spontaneously standing behind the book. 
all the time. When you feel ready and when you don't. I'm giving you the answer before you have the exam. What you are to do is unfold these words. Preach the word. Be ready to do that. Imperative two, in and out of season. Imperative number three, reprove. That's in verse two. The NIV renders that word instead of reprove, correct. That's a good translation. The RSV convince. This is actually seeing a professing Christian walking this way, gently coming beside them and saying, no, 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 no. I need to correct you. You need to go this way. That's part of the ministry of word preaching. Readiness and reproving. And then the fourth imperative is rebuke. That's abundantly, obviously telling someone they're wrong. Correction is the turning. Rebuking is the declaration. And then fifth, exhort. That is to passionately, prayerfully, intentionally seek to stimulate someone to obedience to God's good commands in his word. So the mandate is preach the word. But under that, we not only get the mandate and those five imperative commands, but we also get, I mentioned, the manner, how to do it. Do you see verse two? With great patience and instruction. Preach the word is the mandate. Great patience and instruction is the manner in which we are to do so. That's the how. The ESV renders that word with complete patience and instruction. The Greek word is all, just all patience and instruction. That's two things, patience and instruction. God's been very patient with us and all the slow growth that any of us who are in Christ have experienced has been at a snail's pace at best. But when the Lord graciously teaches us something true about himself from his word and shows us the beauties and glories of Christ, we immediately want other people to get it instantaneously, though it took us you know, light, a long time, light years, to be able to figure it out. Patience. You know, patience actually requires something when you're doing word ministry, word of God preaching ministry. Patience requires something underneath it. The only way not to be impulsive and demanding, to not be harsh and beat people with the Bible, the only way to be patient when you know the word of God is true and the interpretation is faithful to the text and somebody's not getting it, how are you able to be patient? What's underneath that is the ground of confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. Yes, it's inspired, inerrant. This is a God-breathed book. We saw that last week. God said the syllables that are translated into the copy of the Bible in your lap. This is his word, and it is enough. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. So patience comes as the fruit of the confident root that God's word will do the work. But also the manner is not only be patient, but do a lot of instructing. You see that word with great patience and instruction? 
the Christian uh, Bible teacher, preacher, is to instruct, show from the text where you're getting the things you're saying. That you're not making this stuff up, but it's actually in accord with the mind of the Almighty. On that word instruction, the Tyndale New Testament commentary said, Christian reproof or rebuke. Those are two of the things in the uh, mandate of preaching the word, reproving and rebuking, correcting people with the Bible. Christian reproof, they said, without the grace of patience has often led to a harsh attitude, a censorious spirit, which is, quote, intensely harmful to the cause of Christ. Are we not living in that day? The commentary went on to say, but the other requirement is equally essential. For correction must be diligently understood and hence based on careful instruction. To rebuke without instruction is to leave the root cause of the error untouched. We're not trying to do behavior modification here. We're not trying to turn over new leaves and just be a little better at the stuff we used to be bad at. We're trying to excavate the root of the problem, the rebellion against God. All sin is rooted somewhere in unbelief, in what God has said, in pride that we know better than God. And if you just change the fruit without dealing with the root, it's gonna reproduce itself. And this great patience, and instruction is the mechanism that God uses to excavate what's wrong and show us the beauty of Christ to replace. So we've seen the mandate, that is preach the word. And under that, we've seen that we are to do so in a certain manner with patience and with instruction. But I said there's a third part to that first point, the motivation. Do you see it? I know you do. It's in verse one. It's actually threefold. Falls under two epochs, two time periods, the now and the forever. The motivation is God. God now and God forever. God now, verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. That's God now. Now, I know with the eye of our flesh, we cannot see him. But I assure you, on the basis of his word written, Jesus is here now. Many verses would substantiate the sentence that I just said. The church is the dwelling place of God. That's the gathered assembly of saints who have met together on purpose for the biblical worship of Jesus. Jesus said he would be with his obedient people when he got up from the dead and gave the great commission. Hebrews chapter two says it so beautifully that in the gathered assembly, in the congregation, quote, Jesus speaking, I will proclaim your name, Father, to my brethren, and in the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. He comes close to his gathered church. 
And when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, preach the word. I command you to do that. Here's the motivation. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. You may not see him. You may actually disbelieve that he's here. But I assure you on the basis of the word, he's more near to you than the bench on which you sit. The triune God is with you now. And Paul wanted Timothy to remember that he's ultimately preaching for the audience of one, for the approval of one. No matter how many people fill the chairs or what they think about the message, at the end of the day, it is the present triune God whose approval matters. That's God now. He is here. But the motivation is amplified by God forever in two ways. First, he's going to judge the living and the dead. And second, he's going to appear and establish his eternal kingdom. Do you see that in verse 1? In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Now, the antecedent to judge is the second person of the Trinity, Christ Jesus. Yes, God is going to judge you. Specifically, he is going to judge you through a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Acts 17.31, Paul wrote, uh, Luke wrote what Paul preached to the people in Athens. And Paul said to them, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Having furnished proof to all men, he will judge you through this man. Here's the proof. God raised him from the dead. Jesus will judge everyone. And not only is he the judge of the living and the dead, but he's also, we're told in verse 1, going to appear, establish his eternal kingdom. Paul's simply reminding Timothy to look to Christ. As he preaches to the people of Jesus, he's to have his eyes on the Jesus of the people. His appearing and his kingdom. If we believe that Jesus is coming back before I finish this sentence, I guarantee you it would have an effect on how you listen to the sentence that I'm saying. But if you think the second coming of Jesus, just some figment of our imagination, it's been 2,000 years, these sentimental Christians can't quit hoping that someday, some year, some century, some millennia, maybe Jesus is going to come back in the sky. It's just kind of all make-believe, fairy tale, mythological, sci-fi religion. Paul's wanting Timothy to have his preaching marinated, saturated, dominated by the awareness that the Jesus he is proclaiming will soon show up in the room in a way that nobody can miss. He will appear. Who will he appear for? For whom will he return to receive into his eternal kingdom, not to receive his judgment? Hebrews 9, he's returning for those who eagerly wait for him. Colossians 3, as our brother read a moment ago, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Who will be revealed with him in glory? Those 
for whom he is our life. But if you just want to skip down a few verses, you can see verse 8. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Pastor Rick will be preaching on this next Sunday. This crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What's the motivation to preach the word? God is here now, and all people will reckon with God forever or will worship him forever. That's why we preach the word. The mandate is preach the word. The manner is with patience and instruction, and the motive is God is with us now, and all men will reckon with God forever. The second point, I said, is not preach the word and allow it to do its work and trust its sufficiency. Be patient and keep instructing. You may have to correct some people and rebuke some people, but let the word do the work. The second point is the people who want none of that. That's verses three and four, prepare for wolves. Let your eyes fall on verse three. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. These people are drunk with their own desires. They therefore disdain Bible preaching. But they're not going to go without some substance. You see, it's impossible for us not to worship. We have to have some deity unbelievers, typically their own self. But they also have to have some code, some rules, some standard, some Bible, if you will. So these people are going to feed their own ego by finding people who will talk to them. Isn't that interesting? They don't do away with preaching. They just decide what kind of preaching they're going to get. They're just going to get spiritual sounding stuff. It's going to be sprinkled over with some Bible verses but at the end of the day, Paul says in verses 3 and 4, they're not getting any new information. They're just getting reinforcement of what they already wanted to hear. Prepare for these people. There's four things Paul says in verses 3 and 4 about this situation. Number one, the reality of it. For the time will come. Verse 3 when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is not a maybe so. This is a definitely so. In every generation, in every culture, in every time, in every place, people who have infiltrated churches will not endure sound doctrine. That will happen. The time is coming. This is the root problem. The precious doctrines of biblical Christianity are flat out not attractive to unregenerate people. I used to wonder why the old men in the churches I grew up in, uh, the, my tradition, somebody other than the pastor for some reason at the end of the service in all the churches I was part of would uh, mosey up to the platform and get behind the pulpit and pray before the offering was collected. Then they would pass the plates. Every one of those old, wrinkled, gray-haired guys said basically the same thing. 
Thank you for the cross. And the older I get, the more I realize they were on to something. The precious doctrines of biblical Christianity are flat out not attractive to unregenerate people. I mean, they might have been at one time interested in the fundamentals of the faith because it was new, it was shiny, it was a new idea, it was a new philosophy, it was awesome. They were ready to study systematic theology until they got bored with it. The core truths of Christian teaching seemed interesting to these people when they were first discovered, but now these diamonds, these rubies, these precious stones of the biblical record have lost all their luster in the sight of these people. Christ, Christ and his accomplishments as our blessed redeemer have long lost center stage in the attention of these Bible students. They're not not studying the Bible. They're not asking people not to tell them the Bible. They're just making sure that the people who talk to them from the Bible do not major on Jesus. Prepare for wolves. Why do they do this? The first is the reality. The time is coming. The second is the reason. But wanting to have their ears tickled. I don't want sound doctrine. I want my ears tickled. It's a funny picture if you think about it. I want you to imagine that your ears are not burning They've got the worst case of poison ivy, poison oak, sumac, every itch possible thing. You've been bitten by every itching bug possible and your ears, you just want to claw them off the side of your head. It's a funny picture. But you can't scratch them enough. You can't claw them enough. It doesn't matter how much you eviscerate your ears with your fingernails, the itching doesn't go away. The only thing that will alleviate this tingling, itching sensation is not scratching, but tickling. Do you see that? Now, I have to confess that I'm actually on a doctor-prescribed dose of eardrops at the present time. And the diagnosis was based on me telling the doctor a couple Saturdays ago that from here to here feels like it's full of a thousand pounds. <laughs> I, I can hear you, but I feel like I can't hear you. It's just all stopped up and it's from here to here and it's all packed in there. What do I do to get rid of that? Well, what have you tried? Q-tips? He said, you ever seen a muzzle loader, <laughs> a musket? All you're doing is packing that stuff in there. Don't do that. What you need is some eardrops. Well, I appreciate my doctor and I appreciate my prescription, but though a little better, I assure you it is not totally better. How do these people get their ear tickled? Do they put drops in there? Do they 
scratch them off the side of their head? Do they, what do they do? Now picture this. Words. Words. The only thing that will satiate this uncontrollable urge is words. They want to have their ears tickled. So Paul tells us the reality. The time will come. He tells us the reason. And then he gives us the roadmap of what they're going to do. Look at verse 3. They will accumulate teachers in accord with their own desires. I sure hope you're not too fatigued at this point in the sermon to listen extra carefully because I told you we have an exam today. And I want to know, before you fill out your answers on your exam, have you considered prayerfully how dangerous our day is when it comes to Bible teaching? I don't mean the stuff that you think is bad. I mean the stuff that you think is good. Have you considered how dangerous our day is when it comes to Bible teaching? Have you considered how dangerous it is that you can click a button and find hundreds of sermons and lectures and podcasts and studies on any Bible topic that you want? Do you know how dangerous that is? That you can pile up and stockpile. The word is literally accumulate. It's a compounding effect. These people will pile up teachers that tell them what they want to hear. And those teachers are nothing more than a proverbial parrot that is repeating to them what they would have said had they had the microphone. Be warned, Grace Church. Do you want Calvinism? Do you want premillennialism? Or do you hate both of those things and want the alternative of whatever you think that is? Do you want people who love those doctrines that you love or hate the doctrines that you hate? What do you want? Click your button and you can get 10,000 Bible lessons on your favorite topic? Do you want a podcast whose spiritual gift is telling all the other Christians in the world how stupid they are? You can find gobs of those. I'm telling you, it's eviscerating your soul. It's killing you. It's the symptom of the problem. Good news. You can get all that with one click of a button. The question has never been, what do you want? That's not the roadmap to your solution. That's actually your problem. What you need is not what you want, unless, of course, what you want is Christ. Does the teacher you listen to, the preacher who's your favorite, who never says anything that you ever disagree with, does the Bible study material or the podcast unfold what Paul said he was commissioned to talk about only and always, namely, to quote him, the unsearchable 
riches of Christ from the scriptures. And I'm asking you now, test yourself. I began the sermon by saying, test me. So let's do that for a minute. Do you always like what I say when I preach? Not how I say it. I assure you, I don't even like how I say it. I tell people who somehow or another it comes through the grapevine that they've listened to some of my online preaching, they surely have to get extra jewels in their crown in heaven. That's got to be the most miserable experience on planet earth. Listen to me preach on an internet. I'm not asking you, do you like how I say it? I don't like that. I'm asking, do you always like what I say? If so, there's a huge problem with me. Because the word concerning Christ, that's God's definition of the Bible. First, uh, Romans 10, 17. This is singular, the word concerning Christ. That's what Romans 10, 17 says, this book is. And if I faithfully unfold it to you over a long period of time, you might like all of one sermon, you might like all of 10, you might like all of 100. But if you like everything I ever say to you, I'm actually the problem, feeding your desires. So I wanna ask you, does the word I preach ever correct you? Do you leave the room in a posture of repentance because you've been rebuked? Have you been encouraged in some way to take your eyes off of this and back onto Christ? Unregenerate people, lost people do not want that. So do you know what they do? They actually mask their carnal nature with sermons. They actually accumulate more sermons, more Bible study, more podcasts, more whatever you want that's in the spiritual realm, provided it only says what they already want to hear. So who are your favorite preachers and why? A few weeks ago, I said, if your Savior always agrees with what you already believe, you need a new one. Unregenerate people do not want to hear Christ and Christ alone. They're happy for Jesus to come along for the ride as long as he remains periphery to their pet doctrine. What's the result? Not only do we get the reality, the time's coming, the reason people want their ears tickled, the roadmap, they're just going to keep getting more teachers who say what they want to hear. What's the result? It's in verse 4. They turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. It's not only sad, and it's so sad. That's a very sad phrase in the Bible. It's not only sad, it's also pervasive in our day. Verse 3 predicted that it would come, and surprise, surprise, it's here. Verse 4 couldn't describe our current day more precisely. For example... Let's say we had plastered on every billboard of Memphis 
every television station, every local social media outlet, that today at 9.15 a.m., we would be teaching an inductive Bible study method on Romans 8. We probably would have had about the same number of people that came today, about 40 people. Let's say we did the same marketing scheme to tell our entire city that we were going to biblically demonstrate that the next president of the European Union or the United States or maybe some current world leader is the Antichrist. And we would give you seven verses that prove it. This place would be standing room only. There'd be people outside the windows. They'd be lined up for blocks around here. You wouldn't be able to park today. Tell people you're going to walk verse by verse through a book of the Bible at your little podunk church. A remnant of hungry-hearted Christians will show up because they have, verse 4, an appetite for the truth. Tell folks you're going to do a 10-part series on the exact day that Jesus is going to come back to earth, and you'll have national news stations setting up their cameras in the room to put me on their broadcast tonight. Why? People love myth. People love fable. People love spiritual nonsense and spiritism. What they don't love is the Holy Spirit whose job, Jesus said, is to exalt Jesus. That's his ministry. That's his role. Do you love what he loves? Better, do you love who he loves? So, preach the word. Prepare for wolves. Verse 5, finally, persevere in Christ's work. Persevere in Christ's work. Look at verse 5. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I said there were five imperatives in verse 2. There's four imperatives in verse 5. That means command. It's a verb where God is saying, I demand you to do this. That's what an imperative is. These are people in verse 5 who no matter what will not quit being Bible people because Jesus is their supreme treasure. They're persevering in Christ's work. They do so in four ways. First, they stay sober. Verse 5, be sober in all things. It's using the sin of drunkenness via alcohol to teach a spiritual principle that's very similar. Be sober in all things. New International Greek Testament commentary said be sober in this context means be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness. You know, it would look really foolish if when we left church today, nobody in Memphis was driving a car, everybody was a pedestrian walking wherever they needed to go. And all of the people of our whole city were just staggering around because they were obviously inebriated. They're stumbling and falling, scratching themselves up, getting up, trying to help each other up. Just imagine 1.5 million people in the greater Memphis area all absolutely inebriated, sloppy drunk. Paul saying, the time will come when a whole lot of spiritual people 
are exactly like that. Now, can you imagine walking into a church today and being the first one there and everybody who walks in just looks totally wasted? Paul's saying, sober up. Keep your mental and spiritual faculties alert and sensitive. The way you do that is put your eyes on Christ. The converse is also true. If your eyes are not on the biblical Jesus, you are not sober. Be sober in all things, that's stay sober. Second is persevering in Christ's work, stand strong. Endure hardship. Do you see that in verse five? Stand strong. There is no easy place for Christ-centered ministry on planet Earth. That's been true since Genesis 3, and it's not going away. You can think utopia is coming on Earth. Just keep reading the New Testament. Things are going to continue to be very difficult, and I would say increasingly so. Endure hardship. You know, Timothy obeyed this command. One way we know that is Hebrews 13 says he got released from jail. Hebrews 13, 23, Timothy, our brother, has been released. Released from what? Prison. Why? Preaching Christ. Endure hardship. Persevere in Christ's work. He's worth it. Stay sober, stand strong. Number three, speak of the Savior. I've tried to do that a few dozen times already in this message. Verse five says it this way, do the work of an evangelist. Speak of the Savior. Most ear ticklers and people who want their ears tickled share this deficit in common. They talk a whole lot about the Bible and they talk very, very little, if any, about Jesus. I've asked so many people through the years who were in a spiritual slump, some of whom to this day have not gotten out of it. I don't say this, this is what I've said to them, I'm gonna just try to say it as directly to you as I've said it to many. I do not say this to badger you or to beat you. I say this to lift you, to get under you. Can you hold a sustained conversation about Jesus? That's my question. As much as you talk about that doctrinal thing that you love, that I don't even understand, you might be right. I might be wrong. It's way over my head. That, that's awesome. Can you talk about Christ? Tell me about him. Paul's telling Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He does not mean in this context, leave church today and go share the gospel with a bunch of people. Evangelism. Do that. Please do that. Do that for the rest of your life. Absolutely. We gather for worship. We scatter for evangelism. Do that. In this context, he's talking about word preaching. Work at making sure the evangel is front and center in your preaching. The evangel is the gospel. Do evangelism in your preaching. It doesn't mean every 20 or 50 or 100 sermons do an evangelistic sermon. No, 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 no. Every sermon 
should major on Christ and him crucified because that's what the whole Bible is about. So it's my joy now to do the work of an evangelist. You're a hell-bound sinner that cannot help yourself. You will plummet to the lowest corner of the devil's hell and it will be fair unless somehow you inherit what you cannot earn, the righteousness of Jesus. Your sin problem is terrible. It's worse than I can describe to you. You don't know the half of how unsavable you really are because of your sin. But there is some kind of wonderful savior and there's only one. He will not only deal with your worst problem, the sin you've committed, he will also give you the greatest gift, the righteousness that belongs to God alone. The way you can have the righteousness of Christ and all your sin forgiven, being restored to God now and forever, is to believe that an innocent victim, no sin, suffered willingly on his own volition. Nobody forced him to that cross. He hunted it down, he stalked it down. An innocent victim with no sin became your substitute. The gospel is the good news that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world because Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the God-man, suffered for what your sin deserves, not his own. And he rose again from the dead as proof positive to the universe that God accepted his sacrifice even for sinners like you. You can have your sin forgiven. You can be made right with God forever. You have no option B. There's no C, there's no G. One and only one redeemer and oh, is he wonderful. He'll give you himself forever if you will flee from the wrath of God by plunging your soul into the risen Jesus by faith. Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Make sure that if an unconverted person hears you preach, they don't leave thinking, oh, that guy's really smart about all those Old Testament things that I forgot were even in the Bible. When you preach, when they leave, they should be able to remember there's a Savior, and God must want me to know him more than I want to know him because it, it's his son that he gave to be the sacrifice for my sin. You can have him right now, forever. Do the work of the evangelist that speak of the Savior, and then finally, stick to the Savior. Verse 5 says, fulfill your ministry. So the way to persevere in Christ's work is stay sober, stand strong, speak of the Savior, and stick to the Savior. Fulfill your ministry. If Jesus was the pastor of this church, what do you think he might focus on? You don't have to wonder, WWJD. You don't have to wonder. He wrote a book. It's a bottomless, brimless treasure chest of eternal gold. Glut your soul on God. Feast on the fullness of Christ by digesting this book. Encounter him in the pages of scripture 
and rest your faith on him with great joy because he alone will satisfy. Fulfill your ministry. So as I close, I'm gonna ask you, if a person faithfully just told you the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ from the pages of scripture, and never, I mean never, literally never, mentioned any of the things that are causing all the firestorms in our society or on Christian social media. Didn't even talk about them. Never even acted like he didn't even know they existed. Would you feel that you're getting shortchanged in your spiritual diet? If so, what do you really, really want? More pointedly, a question I believe the Lord's been very gently, lovingly, sweetly, winsomely asking me for the past three decades Jordan, when will Christ be enough for you? If he's enough, and he is, then the preaching of his word that centers on him and not your favorite pet doctrine would light your soul on fire. It would fuel your passion for Jesus, your love for Jesus, no matter how out of tune with with the rest of the world your preacher might be. So how hot is your love for Jesus right now? Spurgeon said it, I've repeated it many times. A lot of people can preach the gospel better than me. I'm sure of that. Nobody can preach a better gospel than me. And I've told you the gospel. So come and receive in him the satisfaction that you have so furiously sought for everywhere else. Just knowing good and well, you come back empty every single time you've tried to go to another cistern except for Christ. Jesus Christ is all you need. And his word is an infinite repository of his fullness for all who will simply come to him and trust him by faith. And until he returns, and no matter how godless our society becomes, verse 3, may God make this church faithful in the Christ-exalting gospel-declaring proclamation of his word. That's what's going to get us home, is constantly being nourished on the good words of God as they're proclaimed to us. So I believe some of you today, Holy Spirit working in you like this, need to repent. Tell God you're sorry for all the podcast subscriptions you've got to all the people that say all the things you already agree with. And that's the reason you accumulated them. Just say, God, I'm sorry. That's just made me hate other Christians more who don't agree with me. And you told me to love them. I'm sorry, I repent. Some of you need to repent. That's what the rebuke is. Some of you need correction. You've been Christless in your study of scripture. It's not leading you to the faith which is found in Christ Jesus, verse 14. You love the sacred writings, not the savior of the writing, so you need correction. Others of you need encouragement. Keep going. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Yes, the world's falling apart. Yes, a lot of people want their ears tickled. Yes, a lot of people are telling you to focus on something other than Jesus and his word. You just need encouragement. Keep going. So take from this message what you know the Holy Spirit wants for you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing. And following that song, you'll be invited to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a way of saying, I believe in Jesus. I want to obey Jesus. This is my refreshed 
surrender to you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Do pray that you would help me become a better preacher of it by knowing you more. Just give me more of Jesus and I trust good things will happen. I pray that for all of our pastors, anybody who ever preaches at this church, Lord, cause us to be faithful to your word, fixed on Christ. And I pray for all of our people. Lord, some of our people are probably distracted by gobs of spiritual stuff they've stockpiled that's not Christ-centered. So give them the sweet gift of repentance and let others who have been studying your word in a Christless way be corrected. Um, Cause people not to like some of the things I say in my sermons because they don't agree with it, but then if it's true to your word, cause them to agree with what you say. And Lord, correct me. All the things I said in today's sermon that are not faithful to this passage, would you cause everybody to forget them forever? And if there's anything I said that is faithful, would you cause people to wrestle with you until they agree with you? We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.